Welcome to Tech Back Control, episode three, where we're talking about money. One theme you'll keep seeing in this project is the idea that technology and money are colliding, and there's a potential for a huge shift in the sovereignty and power structures of that monetary system. In today's episode, I'm interviewing a friend of the show who works in finance industry by day and writes powerful thought pieces under a pseudonym by night. Before we jump to the interview, it's worth noting that a week after this interview was recorded, Silicon Valley Bank suffered a bank run and collapsed. They were the custodian of $3.3 billion of reserves for Circle, the company behind USDC, a leading highly regulated US-based stablecoin. Whilst we obviously weren't aware of the story at the time, the topics we cover in this episode will still shed some light on the event and the future of money and our relationship with it. The attention economy pits you against me. Money makes no sense these days and the robots to take a jobs. The planet is in peril, but we can set us free. Put our brains together if we lead with our hearts. Gotta take back control from the greedy and the corporate. Gotta take back control. Welcome to Tech Back Control. I'm quite excited about this interview because I do want to discuss a few topics with you about money, stable coins, and maybe even CBDCs. But I'll let you introduce yourself in a bit. But I, I remember you publishing an article, quite a provocative article, a few months ago called Tether is an Accident Waiting to Happen. And the last time we spoke, you said your views were rapidly evolving. So I'd love to hear a bit more about what's changed and, and maybe, you know, what triggered a change in perspective. But yeah, I mean, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and your background and experience? Sure, Jonathan. And thanks for having me on the show. Really excited to see where the the new project sort of takes you. And um, I think it will be a, a really interesting journey through the fast evolving money and technology spheres. And um I'm Andrew. I'm the author of the Debtocalypse Twitter handle and Medium blog. Fairly nascent, you could call them. But um, very much um, similar interest to you, Jonathan, on money, finance and technology. And in terms of my background, I work in financial services industry. I've worked in that space for around sort of 16 years now. and seen some up and down markets along the way. And it's always a fascinating space to be in. Cool. No, that's really... It's really good to have you on the on the show to talk about this because I've got some I've got a few simple questions for you just to get us started. Obviously, this this whole project is about the disruptions happening with technology and whether those power structures are able to shift in a certain direction to give people more agency over the internet, over technology, over the environment, over a lot of things. This episode is very much about like money, so I wanted to start with a question that people take for granted, which is what gives money value? Because I think that's assumed sometimes, but answering it's quite hard. And then just a follow on question, if you could on that is like, in this current climate, obviously, interest rates have become a very big part of that. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on why interest rates matter so much. That's a very interesting question, Jonathan. And there's probably many <laughs> different answers you could give to that. But I think fundamentally, what gives money value is what you can do with it. And primarily that means what you can buy with it or put another way, what you can purchase with the money. And that would be called it sort of purchasing power. 
And what do we all mean by that? That's fairly obvious. Very simply, if you have money and you're able to sort of buy what you want with it, then it's it's got a lot of value and it simplifies things your end. You just know if I want things, I just need to get money and then I can get the things that, that I want. You don't have to think, well, if I want some bread from the baker, I need to, I need to find things that he wants, whether that's money or services or something else. And equally, you then sort of in the afternoon, if you need a sort of taxi ride somewhere, you don't have to then think, well, what does the taxi driver want? Or oh, he might want some, some shoelaces or whatever it might be. So knowing that money can get you all those different things, you can then focus on on getting the money and that will take care of, of your sort of purchasing needs in that respect. And then I guess thinking about that, what gives money the value that gives it purchasing power? And equally, you know, it's the same equation. It's everybody else, everybody in an economy all thinking the same way, thinking that thing, you know, whether it's pound notes or dollars or seashells if everybody in a community all thinks the same way and is willing to sort of accept the same thing as money then um you know you have money and it's it's sort of as simple as that i think it was andreas antonopoulos i was watching him because he he's quite a prolific commentator when it comes to the bitcoin and crypto space but he was in an interview where he describes money as a, a language which communicates value and then the worth of people's time i thought that was a really interesting one but his point was that like money has no value, like intrinsically. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I think um, that's probably the most important thing about money. In, in itself, <laughs> it's absolutely money. worthless. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it has to be worthless because if it had any worth in itself, in some ways you would be, well, hang on, if I'm giving you this, I want a loaf of bread for it. But actually, this is actually worth something in itself. So, you know, do I want something on top? Now you can debate that with you know, sort of gold coins, etc. but... Fundamentally, you know, the whole point of money is that you use it to, to exchange it for, for other things. If money had value, you know, would you exchange it? Would it be a barrier to circulating? So this is an interesting one because I think it segues quite nicely into like, why do interest rates matter when it comes to money? Well, and that it's a brilliant question. And to some people, most people, most of the time, it doesn't matter even though in other ways it's the only thing that does matter. <laughs> the whole point really is if you think of a sort of a barter economy as opposed to a monetary economy, mm. in a barter economy you exchange you know, bread for fish, you know, a ride home in, in a taxi for, I don't know, maybe some shoelaces or whatever it might be. But the transaction is sort of instant, you know, it gets mm. settled there and then. And, you know, people could always enter into a contract. You could say, well, if you give me a ride home, I'll give you a loaf of bread next week. But, you know, it would be fairly specific. You'd have to actively enter into a specific contract. With money and where it really extends the barter system, it really sort of opens it up, is it sort of puts a sort of time into the equation because, you know, the baker sells his loaf of bread. He gets some cash. He gets some money. Immediately, he says, well, actually, I don't need a fish today. Um, I don't need a, a ride home. So I've got this cash. You know, what does this do for me? Immediately say, well, actually, if he does nothing, can he get interest on that cash? But if he does do something, can he enter into, can he just sit on that and wait and uh, and sort of choose to spend it at a later date? And I guess if he does that, he wants to make sure that if he sells his loaf of bread for a pound today in, you know, two weeks time or a month's time or a year's time when he wants to sort of use that pound, 
he gets you know at least as much spending power as as when he sold the loaf of bread. So how do we know that? Well, if prices just are going up in the economy that he he lives in, if you know the price of fish is going up every six months, he might think, well, you know, if I wait with my pound for a year, maybe I won't actually get that much back for it. So all of a sudden you think, hang on, there's a time element to what I'm receiving, and therefore the interest rate is a way of sort of equalising for that. If he, you know, prices are going up, maybe there's more demand to borrow today. People want to buy mm-hmm. things before the price goes up. And you say, well, actually, well, I'll pay you more money in, in a year because I can sell it for more in a year or whatever it might be. Again, it, it opens up that sort of time dimension to an economy, which is absolutely crucial. You can't build a factory or, you know, even build a boat, maybe, you know, whatever it might be, or a, a large fishing boat, say, you know, houses, you know, pretty much everything in a modern economy, you know, somebody has had to sort of invest take a view on, on what's happening in the future and receive, you know, the sort of the benefits for that in, in, uh, at a distant point in time. And I guess the interest rate is a way that that has evolved from that sort of mechanism. So, so I get that. Say you were borrowing money from me. Maybe there's a there's a time element where actually that money is kind of useful to me. So if I'm not going to have it until a year's time, I kind of want it plus a few percent. That would make sense from me to you. What would be interesting to understand is like, how does it work at a central banking level? Everyone's quite obsessed by that at the moment. And I think it's important to to actually understand why does it matter that the Bank of England or the Fed or the Bank of Japan sets higher interest rates? I I think that's a brilliant question, Jonathan. And um, people, uh, people argue this. Again, people will say money. Does it come from an organic thing? that came from people trading with each other and saying, look, we need Mm. to find a way to move beyond barter and using commodities like gold to say, well, okay, I'll give you a gold coin. And from there, you get sort of banknotes. And did did money come from the people trading and and the economy upwards? Or as some people think, it came from legal tender laws. So government saying, well, you've all got to pay me tax. You know, know, death and taxes are the one thing that's that's certain. And if the government says they'll accept gold coins, then people need gold coins to pay the taxes. So they have value. And, you know, people have have the intrinsic value and Mm. people can then use those to sort of trade in the economy. It could be silver coins, it could be seashells, whatever the government says Mm -hmm. they want for their tax. So, you know, you've already got, even before you look at sort of central banking, how did money come about and people disagree mm. um, and you probably find it's, it's a little bit of both and that's probably where I would sit but you then look at central banking and as you say Jonathan people Jerome Powell head of the, the US Central Bank Federal Reserve coming out saying oh interest rates this month are going to be up or interest rates are going to be down you know what <laughs> what is that why does he get to decide um, <laughs> Is I mean, it might be maybe he shouldn't, but I think there's two things here. There's been a lot of change in the last twenty years, but in terms of there's clearly market forces. If um, more people want to borrow money and less mm-hmm. people want to lend money, you would imagine interest rates will go up no matter what Jerome Powell does, and you know they'll be moving in a, in a certain direction. Equally, if nobody wants to borrow any money and lots of people want to lend money, then you know the interest rates will go down. And, you know, what would cause either of those things to happen? You'd think in, you know, in a really red hot economy, people will be, you know, looking, you know, I've got my money, I want to invest it. A lot of competing opportunities for them to use their money. At the same time, you've got people willing to sort of borrow it and say, oh, you know, it's, it's a super hot economy. I'll build this factory. I'll invest in this new technology. And in five years, 
it'll be worth 10 times the money I put in. So I'm willing to pay, you know, a, a high rate to get hold of that money. So, you know, that's what we might be, be, be pushing interest rates up without any involvement from a central bank. And equally, you know, if there's a sort of recession or the economic outlook's quite uncertain, then who wants to borrow money? You know, people want to repay them their debts and sort of de-risk. Equally, no one's investing in new technology and other areas. They think, you know what, I'll just put my money in, in the bank and I won't take any risks with it. So banks sort of flooded with deposits and no one to lend to. So it's going to be hard for them to sort of charge a high interest rate. So what, what does all that mean? It means I think without any Jerome Powell, you would have you know interest rates going up and down. And yeah, a lot of people would say, well, that should be it. <laughs> Let's remove the, the bureaucrats from the equation and let the economy manage itself. And a lot of people... The freehand, the economy laissez-faire. If you leave people to their own devices, they'll allocate resources in the most efficient way and you'll get more economic growth. But people then point to sort of market failure. But where's the market failure in money that would, would justify somebody sort of, you know, maybe meddling with the interest rate? And I guess if you then step back, people obviously observe what happened in the 1930s with the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And people were like, well, hang on. You've got a huge recession. It lasted for, for years. On paper, you would think, well, oh, the prices have fallen. There's all this money sitting there not doing anything. Once the sort of dust has settled, all these entrepreneurs will come out and borrow the money cheaply and invest in the economy will, will grow again. But as we know, that didn't really happen. And the depression carried on for a long time, a lot of unemployment. And people sort of question whether economies did sort of spring back in, in that way and whether actually influencing the price of money, influencing the interest rate would be a way to sort of help the economy. So if there's not enough demand for loans in the economy, maybe you cut interest rates even below where they are to try and stimulate that. And equally, you know, sort of separately, maybe you sort of, the government might actually borrow cheaply to invest in projects, infrastructure, et cetera, to sort of spur the economic growth. And then on the flip side, when when the economy becomes red hot, and maybe inflation's growing, you know, because prices are going like, up. Like so much in now. Yeah. investment in the economy, etc. The government maybe says, well, actually, let's put the price of, of money up so that it, it sort of dampens down. So that's kind of the genesis of where we've got to. And, you know, another point probably worth mentioning is some people think, oh, it's all a new thing. It's very political, central banks. But equally, before, you know, sort of the modern times, you had the gold standard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, many of your listeners will know how that worked. But for those who, who don't, countries had their own currency, but they all sort of agreed together that if you had some of their currency, you could effectively convert it into gold at a fixed price. And, you know, that allowed countries to trade with each other easily because people you know, had the certainty that, that sort of they wouldn't maybe a French company might not sort of agree to buy some goods from Germany or America. Mm. And, you know, when they take delivery of them or whatever, the sort of the prices have all changed. So you've got the, you've got the currency stability. But of course, to manage that, the issues with demand for money and interest rates within an economy moving were, were still there. Mm-hmm. So it might be the case that the governments, and the central banks might agree with each other that the price of a French franc is fixed to, to the price of gold. But if sort of nobody wants any, any French goods, you know, maybe there's a recession in France, maybe nobody needs French francs. So actually... People are sort of selling the, the French francs and they're, they're buying gold because they want they want dollars. So in that scenario, how do you keep the parity? And the central banks, even back then, you know, 150 years ago, 100 years ago, were intervening 
where they would say, well, let's put interest rates up so that people don't sell the French franc. They keep the francs because they're all getting a nice interest rate here. They keep it in a French bank and, you know, France said stay on the gold standard. So you had these interventions for a very long time. And I think in terms of where we are at the moment, clearly you have politicians or, or sorry, central bankers setting interest rates. And they're doing that in response to economic changes. So ostensibly, absolutely nothing's changed. Hmm. But I guess the, the size of the interventions in the last sort of 15 years are so great, it's now very hard, I would suggest, to see where is it the underlying economy and the underlying sort of economic forces hmm. that are really driving where interest rates are going, or is it the central bank actions? So when you're sort of surfing back to Jerome Powell, people now are maybe saying, well, actually, what's more important? Is it the demand for, for goods and services or demand for keeping your money safe in, in a bank that's driving interest rates? Or is it Jerome Powell's view on that? And people thinking, well, if Jerome Powell's bullish on the economy, he'll put interest rates up. So, you know, let's sell some bonds and I'll buy them back later when the interest rates go up, um, you know, or whatever it might be. So, you know, you, you find these huge movements in sort of financial prices just driven by central bankers, which mm. it feels a bit odd, actually, in some ways. It's interesting. Like there are a few things that I take away from some points that you've you've mentioned. So one of them was around, I think you mentioned interest rates increase the price of money, which which makes sense. It's increasing the price of borrowing. But in another example, when you talk about like imagine the French francs and then competing against the dollar on a gold standard, interest rates can be used almost to make it more <laughs> to make to make it to interfere with the market and to actually make it more attractive to, oh no, have my currency, have my money. It's it's worth more because I'll give you some returns if you hold it. And it's, and it's interesting. But there was a third point you made earlier on around legal tender. I think you said like some people, I don't know how controversial an idea it is, but some people think that because a government or nation state can say, we only make our money legal tender, that's what gives it value. And I thought it'd be useful to explore that and segue onto another question I have, which is linked to this, which is the new and slightly disruptive model of money in the form of stable coins. So for those who don't know what stable coins are, you have cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum and many decentralized currencies. But on some of those networks, you can actually put a token representing the value of a US dollar or a pound sterling or a euro, and it becomes a, a digital transactable token of that same value. And they've been given the term stable coins. Politicians have strange views on it at the moment, and it's still working its way through policy because I don't think there's clear regulation. But I want to know your views. Like, What are your views on stable coins? Um, <laughs> and I'm conscious that you wrote an article about Tether um, a few months back, which I'll, I'll put in the show notes. But yeah, generally, what are your oh. views? I think um, I think they're very interesting, and you can see why they exist. It's effectively taking cryptocurrency technology. No need for a third party to sort of reassure you that you, that your money's safe. You, you can see it on a public ledger. But unlike cryptocurrencies, the value of your coin is helpfully fixed, um, which sounds quite good. So. <laughs> You get the convenience of being able to sort of send money and payments from your phone without having to sort of involve a bank or anybody else and receive money, send it to someone in North Korea or 
wherever, Chile, Panama, um, Scotland, wherever you might need to send your money um, or receive it and well, no one interfere. So, you know, that is just like an email without the, the, the worry that in between sort of sending it and receiving it, the, the price has doubled or, or whatever. So on paper, it's offering a real solution. It's giving people that want the flexibility and sort of control, as you might call it, of cryptocurrencies with the stability and visibility of a sort of fiat currency like the dollar, uh, which whatever you say about it and inflation all the rest of it, but it hasn't halved overnight in living memory. So if you have the best of both worlds, that's surely a good thing. And to be fair, you look at the statistics an absolutely incredible volume of stable coins are traded every single day. I mean, I think Tether, I mean, God, it changes obviously regularly. Is it sort of $50 billion of Tether in existence? So people are out there using these things. I mean, as of yesterday, Tether has a market cap of $72 billion. And in the last 24 hours, 29.7 billion dollars worth of Tether were traded, which... Is mind blowing, right? Yeah, that's more than most stock exchanges. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's a clear reason for them to exist, and particularly when you look at cryptocurrencies in themselves. Um, if I was wanting to trade cryptocurrencies, it's a lot cheaper, a lot easier for me to do that with a stablecoin. You know, mm. and, and it's in some ways that's the whole point of cryptocurrencies. You sort of instantly trade in and out of, of you say, well, I don't want my Bitcoin anymore. I'll sort of sell that. And you sit there, you sell it into Tevers, don't have to move it in and out of a bank account. You pay fees, processing, all the rest of it. You sort of sit there in your wallet on your phone. And then you say, well, actually, I want to buy some EFA next week. You go along and, and you buy the EFA with it. Again, no no bank involved. So, you know, it, it really underpins the ecosystem of, of crypto. So the, 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 there's a lot of positives there, theoretically. I guess the question is... Um, it's about coming. <laughs> you know, the best of both worlds sounds good, but, you know, how does it get there? And you know, there's a fundamental flaw with, with stable coins. Um, and there's different types of stable coins. You've got, and Jonathan, you, you're much better at explaining this than me, but you've got effectively three types of stablecoin. You've got stablecoins backed by something in the real world, mostly a currency, i.e. the dollar, or, or it could be something like gold or, or something like that. You And what what's happening there is somebody's saying, I will, you know, for every dollar I take in, I will issue one Tether or whatever mm. it might be, BUSD. And you can audit my holdings of these, of these dollars and you could count the number of Tevers in on, on my blockchain versus the amount of dollars I hold in, in the bank account. And you know, maybe we'll come to that in a moment. But that's one type of stable coin. Problem with that, absolutely clear. The whole point of cryptocurrency was it was meant to sort of move beyond that type of management. Um, I mean, it's a very simple thing to do. I mean, I'm not a computer programmer, but I think anybody that could program a computer and open a bank account could set up Tether. You know, there's no real insight there. It's the sort of thing people were doing in the 80s and the 90s when you know, the internet first mm. came out. They said, well, wouldn't it be great if we had an internet money that you could buy and sell things and not have to sort of keep going to your, your bank account, which back then actually was much more difficult than it was today. So, you know, an even greater need actually for sort of digital money. 
Of course, as everyone experienced in the 80s and 90s, everyone that set one of these things up, for whatever reason, the money always seemed to, to disappear. <laughs> and, um, you know, there was, and, you know, there'd always be more coins than money. So, you know, <laughs> hence Bitcoin came along, uh, which a genuine insight, a genuine technological progress, which was you don't need somebody to hold the cash that's issuing the coins, the money. And, you know, we all know. That, that works on a public ledger with a network of computers checking how many coins have been issued. And there's no, there's nothing underpinning it. Again, we were talking about money being, it should actually be abstract. Bitcoin is abstract. Nobody's pretending that there's any gold or cash or anything there that's mm. underpinning it. It works because that's all it is. It's just, you have a coin and it has value in itself. But putting that to us, so that's, you know, once the sort of typical stable coin, and then you have some stable coins backed by crypto, which is very similar, but slightly different. And the benefit of that is whoever's holding the collateral, it doesn't have to sort of just say, well, you know, it's all there, trust us, um, or well, we've got an audit that's three months old and doesn't even add up. <laughs> um, but regardless, you know, with a, with a blockchain stable coin, the collateral, e.g. Bitcoin, although I don't know if you have a stable coin of Bitcoin, but... <laughs> there we go. But if you have some, you have a, this is where it gets a bit interesting. You've got a volatile asset underpinning, a, um, a, you know, a, a stable coin. But anyway, you, you can, you can do it that way, but parking that. But then you have another type of stable coin, which I, I actually pass over to you, Jonathan, maybe these, uh, algorithmic coins. And maybe you could sort of even persuade me that these, these, these work. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of algorithmic stable coins because I think the theory behind them is that you can somehow have something purely backed by an algorithm that's 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 <laughs> that's issuing these and redeeming them to retain a peg so an algorithmic peg basically in practice these are susceptible to shock and run on the bank situations because ultimately nothing is it's not collateralized by anything it's just this idea that people buying and selling it keeps it at a peg held by an algorithm and and that can go wrong and it went wrong last year with the Terra Luna fiasco so maybe if we discount that because I think for the foreseeable future they're dead and buried but so if we keep stable coins in the discussion of the two that you've described which is one what I'd call one-to-one backed by real currency so like a dollar or a pound in the bank and then they issue the equivalent as a token and the other which I would describe as collateralized by other assets so something like MakerDAO's DAI D-A-I would be a good example of that where you know if you've got Ethereum you put it in the smart contract you redeem a stablecoin DAI if the value of Ethereum changes it creates that 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 demand incentive to either redeem more Ethereum with your DAI or or, or add collateral to, to to back it up um so so you've kind of got market forces keeping it stable, which are the two options. Both of those seem plausible. I'm just, I'm curious that your your counterpoint was more about you not wanting to trust the person who set it up, right? <laughs> exactly. And I think, um, and what I would say with, with stable coins is, I mean, the, the overall stable coin, you know, universe is around $130 billion of which Teva and you know the number two USD coin account for 115 billion of that. So you've really only got two big stable coins. And actually, across the whole stable coin universe, one thing to note positively, they do tend to be pretty stable. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's weird, they should it? be, but 
actually, if you think we're saying that you've got the best best of both possible worlds, and we're saying, well, you know, actually, you know, do you really? But for most people using them, most of the time, um, in fact, if you say for Tether, sort of all the time up to now, they've worked very, very well. And the reason for that is, on paper at least, if you take, say, Tether, mm. they promise that, you know, they've got 71 billion Tethers out there, and they're saying they've got 71 billion dollars backing that. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, look, if you ever don't want your tether anymore, you can come to us, give us the tether, and we'll give you the dollars back for it. So actually, why would you sell a tether for less for less than a dollar? There's some practical constraints, but parking those for a moment. Because actually, why would you sell it for 99p if you could send it back to tether for, 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 for a yeah, dollar? Exactly. And equally, even if you just did sell it for 90 cents or whatever, you say, oh, I don't want to bother with Tether. They'll never pay me anyway. I'll just sell it to, you know, in the market for 90 cents. Well, if nobody else bought it, Hmm. you would imagine Tether would just go straight in there. They would take one of their dollars that they've got (laughs) and they would buy it back for for 90 cents and cancel (laughs) it. And they've just got 10 cents sitting there, you know, presumably they would love that. Again, you know, you've seen you see the huge trading volume. You know, it's thirty billion dollars of Tether traded in the last twenty four hours. It's incredible. So there's a lot of liquidity there. So you know, they they absolutely work, and on paper they they should work. The question marks for me are are both theoretical though and and practical. And if you take Tether for example, and actually Bitcoin in the whole of the crypto universe, Bitcoin was founded in two thousand and nine, and all the other ones, you know, after that, they were pretty much found in Tether and all these stable coins in a, in a 0% interest rate environment. And obviously, if interest rates are zero, that makes life easier for, for everybody issuing a currency because no one's expecting any yield. You know, the, the, the idea that the money's worth more in the future than it is today is sort of alien concept. So life was very easy. But as we know, and as you touched on, Jonathan, just, just a moment ago, interest rates play a huge role in currencies. And, you know, we talked about the gold standard and we said, oh, you know, if France wants to peg against gold and by implication the dollar, you know, they need to very tightly manage interest rates. And it was very difficult. The gold standard collapsed. Pretty much every country that went on it, albeit France didn't, they stayed on it to the bitter end. But the other ones, you know, they, they all sort of came off one by one. You know, the Bretton Woods, which was sort of similar to the gold standard, came along in 1945. Again, you know, it, it couldn't, it didn't hold together because ultimately economies were faced with the choice of putting interest rates up to a level that people felt was sort of politically unsustainable. And again, even more recently, the UK was fixed to the Deutschmark um, in the 90s. And what happened? Black Wednesday. Very simply, the UK wasn't able to put interest rates up and keep them there credibly long enough to sort of maintain that peg. So, you know, why do I mention all that about Tether? But the, the fact is, Tether's a currency, or it claims to be, all these stable coins are, are currencies, and yet there's no interest rate. There's no way, no one's borrowing this stuff. You can't get any yield, and they're pegged to something, dollar, where today, unlike when they were founded at 0%, you can get 4 5 6% pretty much risk-free in dollars. So, so conceptually, you think, well, hang on a minute, over one, two, three, four, five years, fine, you know, peg something, but longer term, your theory says at some point the interest rate differential between Tether and, and the dollar has to express itself in, in in the price. But, you know, practically you say, well, people aren't using Tethers and, and stable coins in that way. 
They use them because they need money online, they're crypto, they buy and selling crypto, maybe they're gambling, you know, maybe they need to send money overseas, whatever it might be. And therefore they're not, it's not that they would ever put the money in a bank account to get, get an interest rate. And you know, I can get that. But equally, once they've sort of done what they need to do with the money, once even they say they stop trading cryptocurrency, whatever they might, whatever they might be doing with the money, either way, at a certain point, you've got $71 billion of Tether out there. The owners of that are getting 0%. If they put it into dollars, they get 5%. Surely at the margins, more and more holders of Tether and other stable coins will start saying, why don't I sell my Tether and put it into bank account? A question they wouldn't have asked themselves two, three, four years ago. Mm. And I guess then when you think of Tether, the practicalities, well, okay, what does that mean? They just, they sell the dollars they've got and, and they, they buy back the Tethers and redeem and the market cap falls. The question I've got is with, with Tether in particular, but it could be any stable coin because ultimately you don't control where the money goes. Tether's, you know, it's meant to be backed by dollars. That's what they said at the start. Then we found out it was backed by sort of dollar-like things. And, you know, now the sort of the monthly audit that doesn't seem to be an audit sort of suggests around 20% of the money is held in sort of loans and bonds and commodities, whatever that might be. So not easily redeemable into dollars, potentially. So the more people actually start selling their tethers because there's no reason to hold it unless you need it right now, why not sell it, put the money in dollars and then, and then buy some tethers back in a year's time? And you've got 5% extra. As more people sell and redeem their tethers, potentially, the greater the share of these assets that are not dollar-like that remain. And therefore, the holders of tethers, like, hang on a minute, I'm actually more and more and more exposed to something that isn't backed by dollars. And I think at some point, that dynamic will come into play. And if it does do that, then you know it, things could move very quickly. Can I ask you, I'm going to ask you a series of three questions. They are connected to what you just said, but... It's helpful if I ask them one by one. First one, what would stop Tether in that scenario liquidating the collateral they hold that's not in dollars, getting it in dollars and just issuing an interest rate, if the interest rate's so good of holding dollars? Second question, do you think we'll see the mainstream banks, the financial institutions at some stage issuing stable coins? And the third question, which is connected to this, is whether you have any views on central bank digital currencies or CBDCs, which seems to be a, a very, I'd say, hot topic that no one's really asked for, but we seem to be getting. Yeah, so those three questions, starting with Tether, would Tether hold US dollars and just give you an interest rate? I mean, that is a really good question. I guess it was probably a regulatory aspect to that because your relation, you don't in some ways have much of a relationship with Tether as a holder. You know, you hold a tether, mm. and you don't need to have contracted with them. You, I, you can buy tethers from somebody, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, you just got some tether. You know, <laughs> yeah. you just know that you know tether claim that they'll give you a dollar if if you hand it I, back. That to is you. how people see money, though. So it's like it's not <laughs> like I never think of money as well. This came from a bank that someone gave me, and then gave me a note. I just think it's. It's a £20 note, you know, <laughs> so... Well, absolutely, and Teva would say, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. you don't need to think about it. You know, $30 billion worth of this stuff swapped hands today at precisely $1. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's money good in that sense. But I think this <laughs> the question you... The, the, the real question is actually, because the dollar doesn't give you a yield. You know, if you have a dollar or a pound in your pocket, you don't get any yield. So it's no different to Teva in that sense. So why, again, why are interest rates relevant? 
the reality mm. is the dollar and, and the and the pound or the euro, whatever it might be, there are vast economies there and very deep financial markets. But fundamentally, there are people that need pounds, whether it's to pay their taxes or whatever it might be. They need pounds and you know they will pay you to borrow them. And therefore, there is a market to borrow pounds. The market to borrow dollars, that means you can get an interest rate. And, you know, in all these countries, you've got banks, you put the money in the bank, you can get interest rate through the bank. Um, And actually, the government borrows pounds, don't even need a bank. You you lend your money to the government and you get, um, you know, you could call it a risk-free return from from the government. So you've got all these avenues to sort of put your money to work in those currencies. And stable coins, again, this is sort of the, the trick they've pulled a bit. There's no avenue to put your money to work. Now, there's all these people that claim, you know, they'll pay a yield on, on these things. But fundamentally, there is no vast and deep financial market for Tether. And nobody, frankly, can convincingly say they can give you a risk-free 5 mm. 6% return on, on Tether. You know, if they're borrowing Tether from you and they say, I'll give you well, 100 Tethers from you today, I'll give you 105 Tethers next year, how are they going to achieve that? You know, what, what, what's the real economic opportunity to do that? So there's no market there, but that's the, the fundamental difference. But then if you say Tether themselves, the company, I think Hong Kong based, has got the money. And there's no reason why they can't reward holders of Tether. Maybe they put the money in and get the 5% and Tether holders at the end of the year, you know, if you hold 100 Tethers, you get, they just add five to your wallet or whatever it is at the end of the year. That's one way they can manage it. And that, you know, a lot of people might find that quite attractive and more money would pile in from from, from US dollars. And you think they're um, in a political or like regulatory hot potato at the moment, that would be, <laughs> I think that's a reason they don't do it. And that's the irony. We actually do something positive. Yeah. Um, but the reality is we don't know where the money is. The people involved, you know, they've got some interesting CVs. And, you know, <laughs> where does that true. 5% go? I mean, they've never claimed they're giving to you. you so, know, ultimately, the business model is that, that they pocket that 5%. So so what about banks, the mainstream banks? Why can't they just issue, I don't know, pick one at random, like JP Morgan coin? Well, I mean, I think that's a brilliant question because, you know, why not is the short answer to that question. And I think... I mean, it, we'll have to ignore like the regulatory state because they can't actually at the moment, but like hypothetically... It, it's it's a very good question. I guess it really is. A, there's no obvious reason why not. And in some ways, when you put money in the bank, we know they're lending it out. The money mm-hmm. isn't, they're not just holding the cash, but we trust them. They're obviously regular. You know, you do get the deposit exactly. guarantee, but would that apply to the stable coin? Question mark. But ostensibly, why? I, I don't see any reason why they, they can't issue a stable coin other than the sort of regulatory backlash. And I guess the question would be, why do you need one? Because... Presumably, if you sign up with a, a, a regulated bank, you've got to sign, you know, fill in all the forms, you know, the address details, all the sort of stuff that you'd have to do to get a bank account. And with your JP Morgan, well, presumably they'd be a bit interested in who it's being sent to. So mm. would any wallet receiving that coin needs to have gone through the same rigorous checks, you know, question mark there. So if it's a, pretty much the same as having a bank account and sending money, which is very easy, once you've got your JP Morgan bank account and you've got your app, sending the money to another JP Morgan bank account is pretty straightforward. I mean, you 
I guess the benefit for a stable coin would be instant and there's other benefits to that. But I could see that being something that happens and it would probably, I imagine, start from, from banks in maybe not the USA or the UK or, or Western Europe, but oh, in, you know, it, it could be in, in an emerging market that a bank with a you know, reputable bank in one of those markets looks to grow quickly through launching a stable coin. I thought you can say in Hong Kong then, which would really be on like Tether's home turf. Um, <laughs> so, so then moving on to the third question on CBDCs. And I don't want to dive too deeply into this because I think it almost warrants its own future episode anyway. What views do you have, if any, on central bank digital currencies? It's, it's fascinating. I think um, the question I've got around central bank digital currencies is, are central banks looking at this, which they are undoubtedly, are they looking at it in, in a sort of positive way because they think that can help improve the financial systems within their country and help financial access, maybe lower costs? Or are they looking at it in a defensive way? Because, you know, if stable coins ripped through the economy, crypto, you know, took huge market shares in, in, as a currency within economies, which is not happening now. People are not paying for their morning coffee or their magazine subscriptions or their rent with, with any of these currencies. So there's no threat today. But is there a fear that in 5, 10, 20 years time, there could be competing currencies? So the question I've got is, are central banks looking at this for sort of those positive reasons or, or defensive reasons? You know, why do I ask that? The risk that central banks have is if you do get competing currencies taking hold and people are using, you know, non, you know, in the UK, people were not using the pound for their day-to-day transactions. And, you know, maybe people use a US dollar or a euro denominated, you know, stable coin or whether it's from a bank or whatever it is. And, you know, people just use that to transact. Maybe the pound becomes very inflationary. Maybe it's very unstable. Over time, does something like that gain adoption? And all of a sudden, a large share of the UK economy is sort of shifting out of the pound. Does that make it harder for the government to tax people? You'd think it would do. You know, there's all sorts of problems if they lose that sort of seniorage, as you call it. But I think that's a really interesting question worth exploring. But what do I think a central bank digital currency? I think it's, I mean, there's so many questions that privacy is obviously one, which is pretty scary. You know, if all of a sudden every transaction you make potentially is trackable, you know, that's you know, mind blowing in some ways. But parking that again for a moment, what does it mean for banks? Maybe banks are going to be like the post office with, with email. They're just not needed. I see what you mean. And you know, you've got your central bank digital currency. I've got my pound. I get paid in pounds. They go into the central bank digital wallet. Great. Shouldn't lose money there. You know, I spend all my money from this wallet. I pay my you know, mortgage or whatever. Why do I need a bank account? And all of a sudden, you've got this huge industry that's been completely disintermediated. And you think, well, why would central banks want that? But a lot of people would say, well, that's fantastic. All of a sudden, banks are not creating money. The government, the bureaucrats can start, you know, guiding how much money is created in the economy and it can all be so much smoother and, and better, which some people, you know, the positive money campaigners being one of them would say is a really good thing. And who knows? There are huge implications from that. But, you know, are banks almost an offshoot from, I guess, being the only providers of a safe place to keep your money and providing loans into the economy? Maybe... That, that's not something that, that will be needed 
So yeah, I don't think there's that. The, I don't think it's an outside bet that in twenty or thirty years, Barclays Bank or an Out West is not a bit like the post office. Wow. Well, that that brings us on to what I've got in my notes. It says speculative questions because you you've talked about like the potential future scenarios with that. I'm really curious. What predictions do you have given your you've had already quite a long career in financial services what's on the horizon in terms of your predictions for the future of money any notable ones or controversial ones or things that you think will be a slam dunk i think um, it's hard to think how money could get sort of better from where it is and i was thinking today actually if you think you know what what this money allows you to buy things and I was thinking, you know, if you were to sort of advance money, it would be able to buy more things. And then I was thinking, well, what can't you buy with money today? And uh, there are not many things. And I think there's always a, there's probably a question around, you probably shouldn't be able to buy those things that, that you can't <laughs> buy with money today. And, you know, so you should be able to buy legal things. But actually, if you look at, as an aside, cryptocurrency, you say, well, those are the very first things people sort of chose to do with it was to buy illegal things. So, you know, sort of almost... Um, it's on a sort of similar tangent, but there's nothing you can't buy really in, in an advanced economy today that you would want to. I don't think. I think that's probably fair to say. And you know, I think people can invest where they want to invest. Can they loan, lend money where they want to lend it? Maybe not as much in some of those other areas. So I think if money's to sort of advance, you know, you can always. And does it cost you money to send money? Not really. Could it be done quicker? I think that's probably the future of money. So things happening truly instantly. And I think for that, you probably have got some sort of blockchain involvement. And, you know, do you have bank managed stable coins? I think, again, that's probably where you would be looking at in terms of money making, you know, progress from where it is today. But I think it's probably around if I have some money, where is it difficult for me to put that money? It's probably harder to put that money into maybe lending the money. Yeah, people can buy shares, maybe people can buy bonds, but could there be some sort of more peer-to-peer borrowing, lending, things like this that really sort of disintermediates the banks even more? So crypto sort of disintermediates them from payments. Mm. But if you're saying, well, I want to lend someone money, you think, well, you, you, your banks are still involved in that. I think when I think of the future of money, could there be more disintermediation around you know what banks do more generally? To people that have some money, it gives them more agency over what they do with it. Mm. I think, but you know, I think it's hard to see how things could get much easier or quicker or, or, or cheaper than they are today. That's actually a fair point. Actually, I like this idea of disintermediated money between like peer to peer money. You could argue that's you have that with cash, but you don't really have it in a, in a very easy digital form. I think some of the fintech innovation is starting to to head in that direction, which is quite interesting. But do you, do you think there'll ever be a future for a non-government issued form of money? Maybe I, I, I do, I, and I think fundamentally, I think mean, governments can help themselves. What's happened over the last 15 years with sort of the deficit financing mm. being funded by quantitative easing, it has made governments across the world, you know, spending um, has, has gone up, entitlements have gone up. The share of you know, government spending is a percentage of the economy seems to be going up. And I would say, I think money has become more political now because people saw the bank bailouts, the quantitative easing. I think there's a greater expectation that um, if 
there's a recession or there's a problem that the central bank will sort of stand behind it, that money will become looser, and that whilst there's, at the moment this, there's a lot of inflation and, and you know central banks are sort of fighting that, I think for me in the next major recession or, or whatever, there'll be more stimulus, more quantitative easing, more sort of politicization of central banks. And I think in the longer term, that will lead to unsustainably high levels of inflation. And I think where you have the sort of the latent capacity to provide a, an alternative source of money, competing currencies in the economy, in that scenario, it will be easier than it is today and, and easier than 20 years ago for people to sort of just start using alternative currencies. And I think that's, it, it's almost inevitable in, in my view. That's really interesting. I mean, it, it doesn't really cover our listenership, but the places where non-government forms of money have become really popular, maybe I should clarify that. When I say non-government forms of money, I mean, not your government. <laughs> like, So if you live in Argentina, you really don't like, like Argentine pesos. You want something else. <laughs> same with Turkish lira, same with quite a few countries where people who live there prefer either other nations' currencies or like you, you said, like a different form of non-government money. One of the final questions that I want to touch upon a little bit is, obviously, this whole project is called Tech Back Control. And I am trying to cover or explore possibilities for forms of power, whether they can be broken down and whether there's a power shift that can happen in the benefit of people. Do you think there's a power shift happening in the world of money? Or do you think that's wishful thinking from people like me? <laughs> like, be honest, I won't be offended. No, I think there's a huge shift. And I think um, I always say, I didn't come up with the quote, but when a new technology or a new development comes along, people sort of overestimate the short-term impact and they, they underestimate the, the long-term impact. And if you really step back and you, you look at it, there is a tremendous energy around money. Mm. People talking about it in ways that they, they don't think they used to do. You know, should we have modern monetary theory, helicopter money, MMT? Should the government just sort of create money to sort of create jobs um, and then sort of take it all away when, when, when it needs to control inflation? Or should we go back to the gold standard? You know, not many politicians talk about it, but a huge number of ordinary people. This is a, a core number of people that are growing swell of people very interested in that. There's a huge amount of interest in money and the monetary system. And when you look at just the, the trends around you know, central bank balance sheets, volatility in, in sort of financial markets, everything is still unresolved from 2008. What's happening now is just really playing out the back end of that in, in many ways. I think the energy and the interest and the huge unresolved issues with the current system which is, you know, sort of almost central planning of, of money, all point to there being, you know, huge shifts in, in the future. And in your industry, so in your world in financial services, have you have you noticed a shift in the types of debates around monetary theory and the monetary system? Has that changed over the course of your career? You know, that's a really good question. I would say I haven't noticed that actually, and That's I think so surprising. Actually, I thought, <laughs> I, thought no, I really wasn't expecting you to say that. And I think most people in well, I think people who work in finance are obviously interested in these things. But mm. I think and, and 
people from a technology background and engineering are, are maybe more interested in some of the new developments around you know cryptocurrencies, stable coins, all this type of thing. But that's an observation. I think maybe people are very focused on the next deal rather than the uh, the wider ramifications <laughs> of, 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 of money. Oh, we'll see if that changes over time. You can keep me posted. Andy, this, is, uh, this has been a pleasure. Where do people go to read more articles that you've written or hear more of your commentary? Just head over to the Debtocalypse on, on Twitter for the absolute best in financial analysis. I will put a note in the show notes. And yeah, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Hopefully we can uh, line up one of these again in future. No, definitely. No, great. No, great speech, Jonathan. And, um, and good luck with the show. Cool. Thanks, Andy. So you're back to me, Jonathan, to wrap up with my thoughts off the interview. Discussing this with Andy has certainly convinced me that the current state of money as we know it feels ready to be challenged. The more I digest on some of the points Andy made, the more I see value and public utility in stablecoins. Sure, there's definitely some dodgy actors and absent regulatory clarity, but the demand is there. And when you start to question it further, you can see how useful the existence of stablecoins is to people who don't live in the US or UK or Europe and who don't have the financial privilege of a stable, mature banking infrastructure and access to a reliable currency. One thing that surprised me was the perceived orthodoxy present in the financial services world. It reminded me a little bit that for many of us, we're learning about monetary theory ourselves, often in adulthood and without a formal education. And we're doing so because it's in the news and affecting our daily lives. Yet those who work in finance and policy probably have a more entrenched view and aren't necessarily as questioning as the rest of us can be. I'm convinced that there's a power shift on the horizon when it comes to money and it shouldn't be framed by Bitcoin or crypto riches. The shift is in our public education and our ability to have a conversation about money. What it is, why it has value, who should be given the power and responsibility to make decisions about it. I think that it's in that open discourse that the change will ultimately come from. If you enjoyed this first interview, please leave a review on whatever podcast app you're using. If you want to get more involved in the conversation, please join the Discord. A big thank you to Andy at the Detocalypse on Twitter and Medium. I'll leave links to his socials and writing in the show notes. This episode was recorded and edited by me, Jonathan Tipper. The theme song is by Jonathan Mann. The artwork for this episode was created using Midjourney, and the backing soundtracks are from Epidemic Sounds. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you next time.